Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, as always, Tyler Crawley. And normally, I don't really have like a theme for the podcast because I'm usually just talking about the top stories that are happening in real estate, mortgage markets, and of course, the economy as a whole. But today, we actually have a theme and everything that we're going to be talking about has to do with what happened during the pandemic. Home prices skyrocketing. And what does that mean going forward? So we're going to start with a piece that came out this weekend in the New York Times by Emily Badger. And I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly. Kwok Trung Bowie. I think I'm saying that correctly. And it's got a lot of attention on Twitter and other social media. And they, they start off pretty blunt. Pretty uh, straightforward. Over the past two years, Americans who own their homes have gained more than $6 trillion in housing wealth. So good chunk of money, right? I mean, how big is our overall economy? $30 trillion. (laughs) So when you see $6 trillion just being created in housing in two years, kind of a big deal. So now most of this money has been created by the simple fact that housing is in short supply and we have a lot of demand, right? This is the basics of economics. This is understanding how prices work. When you have a low supply and a big demand, you are going to get price spikes. This of course is the opposite of what happened in 2008 when you had a lot of supply and not a lot of demand and home prices plummeted. Now it is a remarkably, they point out, positive story for Americans who own Homes, However, it's inseparable from the housing affordability crisis for people who do not own. And this dual reality of mass wealth creation really has few precedents in history. In fact, they talked to Benjamin Keyes, a professor at the Wharton School of Business, and he was trying to identify a moment when so many people gained so much wealth in such little time. And he told the times, I really struggle to come up with a parallel to this. Like there's just nothing that exists. The only analogies that he could think of, because you know, you can't say 2008 because in 2008, the equity that was being created was evaporating just as quickly. You know, people were tapping their, their homes, getting home equity lines, taking out second mortgages. I mean, as quickly as the equity was showing up, It was out the door. And that's not the case here. I mean, sure, we have seen a lot of cash outs, more than normal, or I I shouldn't say more than normal, but the size, because there's so much equity, there has been a lot, but not even close to what we saw in 2008. In fact, not even an alarming amount of people are tapping the equity in their homes. In fact, most people are just sitting on it. And that's a good thing because when people start tapping it, it's because they can't afford their lifestyles anymore. And now you have a a future problem. But he suggested that the only thing that can be, that this can be compared to was the 1889 Oklahoma Territory land rush or the 1920s Los Angeles oil boom, events that abruptly changed who owned land and how much it was worth. And so I mentioned the early 2000s, the bubble that was created. It was defined by risky lending and overbuilding. Now, of course, not everyone believes in the overbuilding. 
Not everyone. Some people don't, but that is the conventional narrative on what happened. But today, home buyers are on much sturdier ground. We're talking about higher credit scores, much higher credit scores. Conventional mortgages, we're not talking about any of those crazy subprime loans. And people are sitting on a lot of savings, more so than normal. And there's also a housing shortage. And so this is nothing close to what we saw in 2008. And that has collided, all of that's collided with soaring demand from historically low mortgage rates and from remote workers who could relocate to a more affordable place, which has done something that did not happen in 2008. 2008, even though we saw a nationwide housing crash, the buildup was really happening in a few places. And in fact, if you go and look, you know, places like Las Vegas saw, you know, 50% drop in real estate. They were the ones that also saw the big gains. Some areas, sure, they were seeing some moderate growth, but no insane growth. That's not the case here. You're seeing crazy growth across the board. Sure, is it worse in places like Phoenix and in Tampa? Sure, it is. But in Idaho, (laughs) we're seeing 20% year-over-year gains, and that's what is so different about what is happening right now. But it's also impacting not only different geographical regions, but also different income regions. Now, sure, the highest income households who own the most expensive homes have seen the largest total gains. You know, obviously, if you have a million dollar house and it goes up 10%, you make $100,000. Someone owns a $400,000 house uh, and it goes up, say, 20%, you're still only going to get 80,000. So it's going to be less amount of money, even though the percentage was a bigger jump. So you're going to see, of course, the bigger money. But because home ownership is so widespread in America, this is a good thing the poorest fifth of households have also added billions in home equity. So even though there is this affordability crisis, there are a lot of people, first-time homeowners out there, who are benefiting from these big jumps in home prices. And their family's gonna benefit, and their kids are gonna benefit. Because what's fascinating about this, this is what the Times piece pointed out, was I talked to Michael Lovenheim, who is an economist at Cornell, and he said, he pointed out that it wasn't just the super rich that was benefiting in these superstar cities. This was, I love this quote, this was happening in Ithaca too. (laughs) It's happening everywhere. But there's a social component that's a part of this that I thought was very fascinating. So it's not just, oh, I have more money in my home. Look how great things are. It has social implications here. And what I mean by that is that Lovenheim points out that families that experience higher income price growth while their children are in high school were more likely to send their kids to college. So you send your kid to college, they now have an opportunity that they may not have had. They then are able to maybe make more money and then they're able to go out and buy a house. And so the social component of that social mobility is big when you're talking about home prices. So it's not just about home prices going up, it's what can lead to those home prices. And they also found that households with rising home values were also more likely to have children. So you're more likely to have kids, home prices keep going up, you're more likely to send them to college. And then also on top of that, work by other researchers has shown that they're more likely to start new businesses too. So this is a great reason 
why more and more people should be able to get in to homes, but there is a problem with this. And this is, I think, is probably the most important part of this article. So going back to the Wharton professor, Professor Keyes, he says that what we are witnessing worries him because it might reinforce a aspect of the American housing market that he believes is fundamentally problematic. And that is that families will feel that they have fewer alternatives to build wealth, at least at the rate that they're doing it with housing right now. And so therefore they're going to look at housing as both shelter and a financial appreciating asset. And that's going to motivate them to protect that asset. And this is where the problem lies. Because Keyes points out, there's actually something that's kind of pernicious about this in the sense that millions of people have made trillions of dollars for not doing anything. But in reality, they actually have done something or they are going to do something. He says it's worse than that. It's not that they're not doing anything. It's that they're aggressively blocking developments in so many places. And I remember reading about this when we talked about it on the podcast. There was this big, they're talking about home prices in California and how there's all these towns with million dollar homes. But one of the weird stats was that you had people who were living in million dollar homes who had incomes of less than $100,000 a year, which is like insane. <laughs> so there, you have people that were living in these homes who have probably been living there for a while, or maybe they inherited. I'm not entirely sure of the situation, but they're clearly their entire net worth. I mean, if you're making less than $100,000 and you have a million dollar house, that's more than likely where a lot of your money is going to be, if not all of it. And so you are gonna do everything in your power to not only make sure that that price stays there, but appreciates. And so then that creates more NIMBYs who are against development because they wanna protect their home value. And that is bad, that's bad. I'm, I'm, I hate NIMBYs. Well, I don't say I hate, that's a strong word. I don't like them, okay? I'm not a fan of, I'm a YIMBY. I wanna build, I want more people to get into a home. But I think that there is some truth to, because what's, what's fascinating is you're seeing the rise of sort of this YIMBY revolution among young people who are like, I'm never gonna be able to buy a home. Why? Because there's not enough of them. We gotta build more. So that's great. But it's also creating a NIMBY revolution where people who are sitting there going, man, look how much money I have in my home. No, I don't wanna build an apartment complex down the street that could end up compromising what my home is worth and I lose this equity that I have. So I'm gonna fight that development. And what do we know about politics? I mean, I, I should know, I should know, is that more than likely when it comes to a battle between older generations and younger generations, the older generation wins because they usually have more time, they usually have more connections, they have more money, and they are going to be more successful in getting what they want as a political outcome. So they go to their, they write to their politicians, they show up at the voting booths, they send the politicians checks. You know, maybe they know politicians and they talk to them over drinks or whatever it may be and say, you know what, maybe you shouldn't approve that development. That would, we wouldn't like that as a community. That wouldn't be a good thing. And so they end up winning. And I hope that that's not the case here, but it is something that is concerning. So it's great that we're seeing, you know, these high home prices, um, you know, people are benefiting from it. They're building wealth. 
But on the other end, you have people who now can't get into homes. They can't afford it. And it's creating a little bit of a Yimby revolution, but you have a real strong opponent who's like, no, I don't want you to build. And it's interesting because as I said, there's kind of a theme for today's podcast. There was a new report from Black Knight yesterday looking at home prices. And we are getting dangerously close to historical levels of affordability. Or I should say unaffordability. So according to Black Knight's home price index, home prices rose 3% in March alone. <laughs> I mean, once again, these crazy month-over-month numbers, that's a 36% annualized rate. That's insane. And this is nationwide. I mean, sure, every once in a while we have a crazy market like, uh, what is it, Phoenix, 30, 31% year-over-year growth. But nationwide, a 3% annualized, that's, that's crazy. This is the fifth fifth time in the pandemic era that homes have increased by more than 2% in a single month. Now you have the 30-year mortgage rate at 5.11%, according to this Black Knight Mortgage Monitor report. And that was on April 21st. And I can assure you that rates have not gone down since then. So the share of the median income required to make a principal and interest payment on the average priced home is now 32.5%. It is very close to the all-time high that we saw in July 2006 when it reached 34.1%. Now, a rise of just 50 more basis points, which if you saw what happened with bonds yesterday, that we're getting close to that from where we were two weeks ago. A rise of just 50 more basis points or a 5% rise in home prices would push affordability to its worst level on record. So that's, that's, um, that's not good. Now, here's the good thing is that people are smart. People are inventive. What are the, what's, what's the great saying? Necessity is the mother of invention. And so people still want to buy homes. And you talk to realtors. I mean, there's still crazy offers. It's still a hot housing market, maybe not as hot as it was, but it's still hot. There's still multiple offers coming in. People bidding over ask that is happening. No doubt. But here's the good news. People are finding a way to make home buying more affordable. And so in some cases, the wall street journal, uh, Orla McCaffrey reported on this yesterday saying that more borrowers are paying fees to cut their interest rates and making higher down payments to lower the amount they have to finance. People buying homes under construction are choosing to lock in today's rate rather than risk even higher ones later. And more home buyers are considering home loans that carry lower rates in the early years. Applications for adjustable rate mortgages have doubled in just the past three months. We talked about last week, the Mortgage Bankers Association uh, reported on that, that it had doubled in just the last three months. And so people are trying to find a way that they can now afford these payments. And so if they have, they're sitting on a bunch of cash, why not put more money down or pay to lower your rate? You know, that's one of the ways. Now I've, I've talked to some 
people who've been in the business longer than I have been in the business, and a lot of them aren't a huge fan of people paying to lower their rates. Uh, but people, you can do it. You can do it. Uh, but it seems like a lot of people are saying, you know what, maybe go the arm route. And you know, this idea that we may see a, a situation once inflation gets under control, and then all of a sudden, maybe we're in an economic slowdown, rates will lower. I mean, it's possible. I mean, it's always a gamble, right? You're always taking a gamble. <laughs> but I have heard people suggest that. And so it's people finding a way. That's my whole point. That's the whole purpose of this article is that people are finding a way to make home buying more affordable or at least fit the budget that they're looking for. So maybe they put more money down. Like I said, maybe they they buy down their interest rate. Maybe they go with an adjustable rate in the hopes that in the next couple of years, we are going to see rates drop and then they can refi. So there's a lot of options out there and people are, are finding a way. Now, here's the thing that you do need to be aware of. And I mean, so here's the good news. So here's the good news. We're nowhere near where we were in 2008 with regards to people going the adjustable rate route, (laughs) the adjustable rate route. So back then we saw 40% plus of purchases were arms in the peak of 2005. And back then we're talking about risky, risky, risk characteristics of these loans today are much more conservative. We're talking about arms with seven, 10 year introductory periods, which make up the vast majority of arm originations last year, 85%. The average debt to income ratio among March arm rate locks were above 31%. The average arm credit score is 757. And that is the highest since at least 2017. And the number of outstanding arms is the lowest in more than 20 years. Now, the Wall Street Journal reported on something interesting with regards to arms and how much different they are. Not not just the borrower being different, but the product itself. Saying to qualify, applicants must be able to afford mortgage payments at rates significantly above the starting rate. So they're trying to avoid the mistakes that we saw in 2008 when people were barely able to afford the teaser rate. And then the hope was, okay, we'll just refinance and get the teaser rate again. And then of course they couldn't do that. (laughs) And then all hell broke loose. And so that's one of the things they are trying to avoid as we look at more people going the arm route. But here's the thing, as of right now, not a problem. Looking at this data, it was really funny because I saw, speaking of this Black Knight report, they had a chart. They were talking about foreclosures. And there was an article last week, I think that was looking at Adam Data Solutions data. And it said foreclosures up 181%. Very doomsday-like headline, of course. Clickbait, trying to freak everyone out. Well, I was looking at the chart in the Black Knight report yesterday, and it had the you know foreclosures for the last 20 years. And foreclosures for the last two years, because of the eviction moratorium, have been at historic lows. And even though they got rid of the eviction moratorium, they're still very low because people are sitting on so much equity. I mean, if you can't afford your house anymore, you're not going to foreclose on it. You're just going to sell it. And you might even make money on the transaction. So why would you foreclose on it? But they had this little uptick. And sure, it was a big, it was a big spike. 
but it was still below like the last 10 years or 15 years. <laughs> but sure, it was a giant spike from the almost zero foreclosures that we've had. And so I think it went from, I think it, I can't remember what it was, but it was 180% jump from maybe 4,000. And then it jumped up to, you know, 13,000 or something along those lines. And so sure it was 181% increase, but when you actually look at it on a chart, it's still the lowest level in the last 15 years. (laughs) So it's like, it's uh, be very wary of, of some of these reports where people start saying, Oh my gosh, arms have doubled. And it's like, yeah, but they were already pretty sparsely used before. So sure they've spiked, but there's still a relatively small amount of loans, but it is important to keep an eye on this data because if you start to see more and more arms and you start to see people going the non-conventional route, and then all of a sudden you start seeing more kind of, less than stellar borrowers spiking with volume and uh oh that's when you can say okay let's let's what's going on here what's happening are we are we going on that because we could i mean we could i mean homes are reaching a point where they are becoming unaffordable i mean we're seeing now that they might be the most unaffordable that they've been and so that's going to cause some people to panic and say i got to find a way to get into a home and then they might fall victim to scams people say oh yeah yeah well you get that teaser rate and everything will be great and so you do have to look at this data and make sure that we do not go down that path all right that's it we are done for the day you guys i know it's only the morning (laughs) but i'm done for the day with this podcast you guys enjoy your tuesday we'll be back here wednesday morning for another edition of markets and mortgages. And remember, as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait.